Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 49 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 49, Scott and I are going to recap a bit of the exciting stuff that happened at District Meet number two, uh, hosted at Madras, uh, Oregon. Talk a little bit about the meet overall, and Scott will give a Scott's, uh, 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 Scott will give a Scott's, Scott will give a stats update uh, for what was uh, stuff that came out of the meet. And uh, then we will move into some rules discussions about things that kind of, kind of shook out of what happened it, at Meet 2 in terms of questions and rulings on questions and so forth. So some very interesting discussion stuff there. And we will then, of course, talk about uh, another chapter in our list of memorization material. We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 10 today and going through those verses and talking about kind of the both the spiritual significance of them and the memorizational uh, importance of those uh, verses. And then we're going to talk about some study strategies to bridge the gap between meets two and three, because, you know, traditionally over the course of a, of a quiz season, we have a meet usually in November, and then we have a meet usually in January. And the break between those two can sometimes be uh, overwhelming. Uh, it's, it's usually a fairly long break. This year, it actually turns out to be a fairly short break. I mean, relative to years of the past, so it's not quite is significant, but nevertheless, we still have Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, all kind of happening between these two quiz meets. So District Meet 3 is sometimes it's a little bit kind of hard to get back into the groove. So we'll be talking a little bit about some strategies to mitigate that. And then uh, I, we're going to talk about two kind of areas of conservation at quiz meets. And by conservation, I mean things to control uh, at a quiz meet in terms of being a quizzer. And as, if you're a coach, then it's things that you can do as a coach to help your quizzers conserve on these two areas. Number one is energy conservation. And I, I don't mean that by, you know, like save all the energy or anything, but rather manage the uh, expenditure of energy so that your quizzers, if you're a coach or if you are a quizzer yourself, you are expending energy in such a way that you can ride out the entire meet all the way through the last, you know, quizzes on Saturday with sufficient energy to do well. And then the same sort of idea of conservation of attitude and why those two things are incredibly important as a quizzer. So with that said, we will, let's start off with talking about district meet number two. So it was in uh, Madras, Oregon. It was a uh, beautiful weather. It was very, very cold. Uh, when I got to my car Saturday morning to drive to the church, there was this, um, you know, layer of, you know, frozenness uh, over the car. It's always kind of fun I, I'm not used to this because I live very close to sea level in the Puget Sound. And it, I mean, it does freeze from time to time, but it's not like a normal thing. And so like when you go to your car and it's been, uh, you know, sitting out all night and you reach under the handle, you know, to try to open the car door and it doesn't kind of go, you know, that normal car opening sound. There's, in, there's instead this kind of like this crackling breaking sound that happens first and you're like oh no did i break my car and it's like no i was just breaking all the ice that was sealing the door shut to the car that had formed overnight uh it was very cold but very beautiful a uh, beautiful sky and of course room two had that gorgeous view uh, directly out to Mount Hood uh, and the foothills uh, from the from the east there. The uh, meet itself was fantastic. A lot of great quizzing. I felt like, and I, of course, Scott's going to tell me the actual truth of what happened based on the statistics, uh, but from a non-statistical, purely sort of emotive, in-the-moment experience, it felt to me like quizzing was a little bit stronger at Meet 2 than it was at Meet 1. Uh, there seemed to be a little bit stronger energy level going on at the meet, and I thought that was fantastic. There was a huge amount of cheering that was going on during finals uh, in Room 1 on Saturday, and that was fantastic. It was great to see kind of that energy come together. And, of course, the Adult uh, Quizzing League, uh, we had two quizzes on Saturday, uh, one during the break between prelims and semis uh, slash con and uh, then we had another, uh, the second quiz just before finals. And it was loud and it was fantastic. Uh, there were, let's see, Cuddy quizzed out 
in uh, the Adult League second quiz that was in room one. I was quiz master there, and Scott got a question, and that of course set the room uh, uh, just cheering like crazy. It was a it was just a really fun event for both the participants and the spectators and the officials. I had a lot of fun uh, quiz mastering uh, those two quizzes. All right, so with that said, uh, Scott, tell us the truth. What what is what is the reality of what happened with statistics uh, at the quiz meet? So unfortunately. Meet 2 looks like it was actually a very slightly weaker meet, all things said. <laughs> so same number of quizzers, same number of teams at each meet. Um, meet 1 featured a sum of 1,700 average points, but Meet 2 featured a sum of 1,566 average points. And I also did quick sums at, like, Top 5, top 10, top 20, top 30, and all of those are very close with a slightly higher sum in uh, Meet 1, but roughly roughly speaking, the same. Um, now, the interesting thing about quiz scores is I think they often kind of equalize at the same numbers, but it might be radically different jumping speeds and material knowledge that gets you to those numbers, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, totally makes sense. Yeah, and I mean, maybe the scores were, you know, just a hair lower than meet one, but the energy level was higher, and maybe that was just because the competitive nature was increased. It's sort of like, I guess, maybe comparing a um, an early regular season district meet to, like, internationals, where internationals, the scores will actually be a lot lower, uh, but the competition is actually much more fierce. Correct, right. So maybe pure sum is not the best way to look at it, although I do think at the district level, oftentimes um, higher <laughs> scores will mean better quizzing. Um, but quizzing kind of is competitively set up really nicely with three teams and toss-ups and air-outs and quiz-outs and um, air points. Like It all kind of works together to keep jumping speeds reasonable, regardless of the material knowledge. It's, I don't know, I think it's quite quite interesting and I think that's a big reason that whenever you try to do a two-team quiz or King of the Hill at practice or any other kind of variant, um, quizzing often looks very, very different and often worse because the rule set is kind of all holding it in this very balanced equilibrium. So the scores can kind of hide the actual material knowledge underlying it. So it would be great if the material knowledge at Meet 2 was much higher, even though you don't see that in the scores. Yeah, I totally love the way, even though, you know, we like to gripe endlessly about the tiny little edge cases in the rule book and so forth. I, I really do appreciate how the quizzing large big picture kind of structure is uh, designed. I don't know if this was intentional or it was just a byproduct of, of what happened over time, but it feels very much like actually this more than feels it, it generates by its nature a system that's almost self-regulatory, right? Uh, in terms of, of jumping speed, in terms of quality, in terms of uh, stats and so forth. I like that kind of balancing. You you can't really, it's almost like um, engaging in the financial markets. You, you, you can find maybe something that you can arbitrage for a short period of time, but very quickly that gets caught on by others and, and it gets factored into the, the overall metrics of the system. And I sort of love that, that nature of the system, how it's almost self-balancing in the grander scheme of things. Yep. All the point values are known to everybody. Everyone can see exactly how fast everyone else is jumping. Um, and the questions are not known to anyone. And so it's all um, a large amount of information that everybody has, um, and then the exact same information that no one has. Um, and it does keep things in a very nice equilibrium. But let's see here, other stats things. One thing I found interesting is that at meet one, the ninth place team, we had a two-team tie for ninth um, with 55 team points. Um, so that was the last team to make it into semifinals, averaging 9.17 points a quiz or about 100, 100 points um, as a winning team, roughly speaking. Well, at the second meet, it took 68 points to get into semifinals, 11.33 per quiz. So what's that? Um, 55 to 68 difference of 13. So that's more than two points a quiz difference, which is actually quite large. Um, and yeah, I don't know what, exactly what that indicates. It it might indicate that the semifinals teams were overall kind of stronger. So we might have had 
um, more points concentrated among top teams um, as opposed to spread out among them. But it was definitely the bar was a lot higher to get into semifinals at meet two than it was at meet one. That makes sense from my sort of, you know, person on the ground perspective. I felt that uh, the finals was particularly exciting. I mean, finals is always exciting to some degree, but this particular final seemed very tight, very exciting. Uh, It ended up that, you know, we had uh, two Lighthouse teams uh, in finals uh, together. That was uh, great for Lighthouse. Logan won the quiz on question number 20. I always love you know, quizzes with, that, that, that get decided on question 20 definitively like that. I just, just, it's, I love sort of the neck and neck nature of, of qu- quizzes that are neck and neck like that and get decided on question 20. It's really cool. I think the only thing that excites me more is when uh, a quiz gets won on question 20 because of a third uh, quiz or bonus or something. That's like even way cooler. Um, so I, I'm remembering, uh, you know, internationals, the, the third, was that the third quiz? No, it was the second quiz. It was a second quiz in finals and internationals where uh, Sam on question 20 got a third uh, a quiz or bonus and tied a three-way tie. Was that the second quiz or the third quiz? Do you remember? I don't remember, but I, I think it was the second quiz. Yeah, I think it was the second quiz. I mean, it was a nail biter. We were coming down right to the wire and he ties it up. Uh, I forget ex- exactly what it was. I think it was 80, 80, 80 because of a third uh, quiz or bonus uh, that, that Sam got. And that was that was just way cool. And I just the, the excitement and the energy that comes out of that is uh, fantastic. And of course, everybody in the room just totally got into it. And uh, it was great to see, you know, Logan put in the prep work. Well, I mean, obviously I didn't see him put in the prep work, but it was obvious he did put in the prep work and also uh, to quiz effectively and consistently and maintain his energy level through the course of the entire two days to be able to help his team uh, come out on top. And then his, his teammates also uh, all contributed uh, in significant ways to their victory. So I don't want to, you know, single out Logan as the only reason why they won. Obviously, he just got question number 20, um, but they all contributed, and that was fantastic to be able to see. Some year-to-date um, updates for teams. The year-to-date standings don't mean anything at all because nothing counts yet for team qualification to district championships. But I love that there's quite been quite a lot of parity among the teams up top. I believe... Um, only Dallas significantly changed their teams between meets one and two, so the rest of the teams were largely the same. But we've already had five different teams compete in final. Um, the maximum we could have had is six. So it's great to see a lot of different teams in finals. And there are five teams that have all placed in the top six in each meet. Um, but even so, there's been a, a good amount of shifting, um, which is great to see. It means the teams are um, both close in ability to each other, but also... Uh, working hard to change where they're where they're at between meets. For the year-to-date individual, again, after two meets, there's not a whole lot that we can pull from it because um, we need meet three to be concluded to know which meet of the first three that each individual gets to drop because they get to drop their lowest. Um, and there were four individuals that scored um, very well at either meets one or two, but then missed the other meet. So if they put up a similarly high score at meet three, they could really rocket up the standings um, and shake things up a bit. But I am forecasting that um, an average above a year-to-date average above a 40 um, is going to probably get you really close to the top 20. Um, something like a 40, 41, 42 might not be enough to get you into the top 20, but I bet you something like a 45, 46, 47 would be enough to get you into the top 20 by the end of meet three. Very cool. Well, we had some interesting logistics going on at uh, the Madras meet. One was the church Wi-Fi, which did work a little bit better this year than last year. Uh, last year, we had some sort of on and off problems throughout both days, and it was quite frustrating. This year, it actually was a lot more reliable. There were some you know, delays uh, in Cuddy's room. Uh, she experienced some network problems from time to time. Uh, in room one, I just ended up using my my own little mobile hotspot uh, and just because I figured I could. And if, if there was any kind of bandwidth contention, 
at the church Wi-Fi level. I, I, I was, you know, me opting out of that would help the other quiz rooms. So I just used my mobile hotspot, which worked out fine. But I didn't really hear any other problems across the other rooms other than just in, in Cuddy's room with just sort of a, a lag sometimes that was happening because of the, the network connection that was really slow. But it was workable and we were able to get through that. We did have a fair bit of delays getting started. Uh, there were several cars arriving uh, late and some actually quite late uh, to the meet. And so I just want to kind of throw out there, you know, remember if you are driving, please assume that traffic will be worse than you think it's going to be, uh, especially through, uh, you know, the Portland, Tacoma, Olympia, you know, sort of corridors, the the traffic uh, on Friday uh, evenings tends to be worse than it is any other time of the week. And so just kind of take that into account. Uh, there's no harm in leaving a little bit early. Uh, you know, you just have a little bit of extra time to hang out in fellowship. So, I mean, if you show up half an hour to an hour early to the church, your quizzers get an opportunity to hang out with other quizzers and fellowship and have fun before quizzing begins. Uh, but if you arrive a little bit you know, late, uh, or even a lot late, it can, uh, it, it adds stress to you. It adds stress to the quizzers. Uh, it actually adds stress to the other teams too, because we end up having to kind of shuffle things around on the schedule from time to time and, uh, kind of stalls the quizzing energy on, on Friday. So it doesn't really help out for, for anybody, but I think it really hurts your quizzers, uh, in terms of like their ability to enjoy the process and not be stressed out by it. So, you know, make sure you leave uh, with enough time uh, on your hands there. Uh, one of the things that I announced in the leadership meeting on Saturday was that uh, Kaylee and I have been working with a couple of different churches in the Pacific Northwest, churches that are not currently involved in P&W quizzing. And there are two that are very close to getting involved in Bible quizzing. So uh, nobody's really signed on the dotted line, if even though there isn't. A, a dotted line to sign anything on, but I mean, none of them have fully committed to actually showing up and participating yet, but uh, both are very seriously looking at the January meet, uh, meet three as their first meet to jump in, which is, uh, you know, for some of them, it's going to be actually for both of them, it's going to be, you know, a little bit awkward and weird kind of starting halfway through the year. But uh, it's a, if, if it happens, it's going to be a very exciting thing. I'd love to be able to see these two churches join in. And so, of course, if you see, you know, at Meet 3, if you see some people you don't recognize, uh, please introduce yourself. Please welcome them. Uh, make them feel at home uh, in quizzing. And I'm sure everybody's going to treat them fantastically. I have no uh, concerns about that. But just wanted to let people know that... You know, we might be seeing the district start growing, which would be a really wonderful thing. So that's kind of upcoming. That is awesome to hear. It's always good to have um, additional programs in the district. I think the number of programs, more so than the number of teams or quizzers, is indicative of the health of the district. Um, and back on your timeliness of getting to the meet subject, the next meet is at NSA. So not only do teams coming from the South have to deal with potentially Portland and then Olympia and then Tacoma, you'll also have to deal with downtown Seattle. So that will be, I, I quizzed for NSA. So I knew that most meets that we went to, we would have to travel through downtown NSA going South on our way to get there. And there was always a slowdown there. Yes, indeed. Yeah. There's, you know, everybody expects Portland uh, to be bad and Olympia and Tacoma are never particularly good, um, especially the, you know, heading north on I-5 past the Tacoma Dome is uh, pretty much always a parking lot. So just be aware of that. But then you think, oh, it's going to be smooth sailing once I get past that. And it's like, nope, you've got yet another slowdown happening as you uh, pass through Seattle uh, on I-5. And there's really... There's just really no good way to avoid it. Um, any sort of alternate route is just going to add time to your schedule. So just keep that in mind. Well, one other thing to keep in mind also is that the stats Scott is referring to uh, are all available on the PNW website. So take a look at the current season and uh, take a look. There's a link on the left-hand side of the page there for statistics, and you'll be able to pull up uh, year-to-date stuff and be able to pull up specific things from either the Madras Meet or from District Meet 1 at E and be able to track things at the either the quizzer level or the uh, the team level. So uh, check those out. Well, Scott, should we move on to Meet 2 rules and things? 
Yeah, that would be great. All right. Well, what do you got? So the first one is, let me pull up the material. I believe it's Hebrews 7. Nope, Hebrews 9.5. So the phrase is above the ark were the cherubim of the glory. I believe the question was, where were the cherubim of the glory? And the answer that we were seeking was above the ark. And the quizzer gave on the ark and then was allowed time to finish. Time ran out, never got to specifically above the ark and was ruled incorrect. There is a challenge on the basis that um, I wasn't there, so I'm heavily paraphrasing from afar, but um, there's no real big functional meaningful difference between above and on the arc. Um, and I believe that that challenge was accepted. And I think it's an interesting one to talk about because it doesn't really, this is one of those subjective rulings that has to be made on correct versus incorrect. Um, yeah. And I'd love your thoughts. Well, uh, yeah, it is very interesting because I think it is subjective. I think I would have accepted the challenge. Um, I think I I don't know how I would have ruled. It's probably terrible to, you know, Monday morning quarterback uh, what was going on uh, in somebody else's room. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think on the arc and it's sort of I'm envisioning this is terrible. I'm envisioning in my head the scene from, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark where they lift the Ark of the Covenant out of the the, the sarcophagus that it was sitting in, uh, you know, an Indian and um, who's the other character's name? I'm not sure. Um, but they they lift it out and they, um, you know, I'm seeing the, the two angels, uh, well, the two cherubim on top with their, their wings touching each other and so forth. And it's like, well, okay, yes, they are above the ark in the sense that their wing, their, their, their feet are kind of touching the ark, but their bodies and their wings are above the ark, but they are both there. They are at the same point on the ark and because their feet are touching it, they are standing on the top of the ark. So... Yeah, I think I think functionally it's it's acceptable. It's certainly not a unique word that would have made a world of difference. Um it's key to the chapter, but so what? So yeah, I mean I I think the challenge is is a good challenge and I think the the ruling is is good. Was Belloc the character you're trying to think of? Yes. Yeah. No, 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 not Belloc. Belloc's a bad guy. Um it was um oh, I can't remember his name. He's the comic relief character. Indy's friend I can't remember, and I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna Google it. I could probably sit there and Google it. Google it in a, a couple of seconds, but I feel I, I'm just gonna sit in misery over the fact that I can't remember something so important <laughs> as Hin, Indy's friend's name. Um, he's a great character. He shows up in um, uh, Last Crusade also. Um, but yeah, anyway, those two guys they lift the ark out. So what I think I probably would have done in this ruling is when the quizzer said on the ark, um, they're definitely not incorrect. So I'd let them keep answering. Um, but this, for quizzers, is something to kind of pay attention to because the quizzer might say on the arc, then says nothing more, the time runs out, and then the quizzer, the quiz master might say, you are correct, which at first glance seems really curious. You know, you didn't count the quizzer correct earlier, but then after saying nothing, you then count them correct. But what quiz masters will often do is um, they might say, like, I think they're correct enough when they say on the arc. But they still have time left, and if they happen to say above the arc, I know they're definitely correct. So there's really no harm in letting them just have more time to try it out. Um, but um, it, it will seem weird. Quizzer gave no extra information and was, then was counted correct on a seeming delay. Um, but that, that's often what's happening and probably how I would have ruled here. Uh, but then when it comes down to the actual challenge, I think that both of these answers are acceptable. But if there's a particularly strong challenge or very strong rebuttal, I think it could definitely sway a quiz master one way or the other in one room and a different quiz master the, diff the opposite way in the other room if the strong challenge or rebuttal was for the opposite answer. Because um, I don't think that rulings necessarily, especially of a subjective nature like this, should always be consistent in every single room because the, the quality of a challenge or rebuttal is going to be different information in each room. Um, and then there might be historical or theological meaning um, within a word, a specific word, like above or on. So like maybe theologically um, on like implies resting on, and that's not the case. Above is like suspended above. But really when we're quizzing, we're as much as possible, we're really just making rulings and requiring content based on um, 
the verbatim words that are given. And really in the English language, above and on don't have a whole lot of difference. You know, they kind of both are talking about something above. Um, and so I, I think they're m- mostly interchangeable as opposed to words like with, you know, like with the arc, I'd be like, ah, it's, it's kind of a different thought than on or above. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. I will frequently do what you're talking about. You know, somebody isn't perfectly right in their answer, but they're probably right, but I'll give them, I won't count them correct. I'll give them their 30 seconds to get more accurate because here's kind of the, here's sort of, it's sort of a safety uh, concern, I guess, from, from a quiz master's perspective. If you count them correct and there's time remaining and there's a challenge and it turns out that, yeah, you know, they weren't actually correct enough after all, for whatever reason, like there's a, a fairly compelling challenge, then it's like, well, then they might have been able to get it right had you given them their time, right? So the only thing that you can do as a quiz master is throw out the question and redo it. Uh, whereas if you give them their time and then there's a challenge, then it's like, okay, then you can say, yeah, I'll reverse the ruling and count them incorrect. And nobody wants to count anybody incorrect, but it's a much more, you know, uh, the fate of the question in that regard rests more on the quizzers than it does the quiz master. I don't like situations where the quiz master is the one. I mean, obviously the quiz master makes decisions, right? The, the quiz master makes rulings all the time, but I don't like the fate of a question to be dependent upon the quiz master. It should be dependent upon the quizzer. Definitely. Um, as a quiz master, it's really a poor end result to throw out a question. Um, and what I'm meaning specifically is if you've read the question and maybe have made a ruling and then you end up throwing out the question for one reason or another, that's really not a good result. If there's ever a true basis for throwing out the question, you should be doing it um, before a quizzer is even answering. Um, now, if well, it's I mean, a matter of- yes, yes, except there, there is the case where like, it's an invalid question, but you don't notice that it's invalid. And then somebody challenges after the fact. Um, and you're like, okay, yeah, you're right. It was an invalid question the entire time. So then, I mean, nobody likes to do that, but there are cases where, you know, a, a quiz master can honestly get to a point of like, yeah, I, I really do have to throw this out. Sure. But those are, those cases are very, very like, they're pretty objective and slam dunk, right? It's, I announced yeah. this as a chap as a chapter verse reference. And then I didn't give the chapter or the verse, or it's a completely invalid question, you know, as opposed yeah, to something like this, where there's a, a subjective ruling involved. And then for some reason, um, you end up throwing the question out. That's really not a result that you want to get to. Yeah. Um, well, it's, an, it's, it's, it's a, uh, it's a cop out too. Like, so, I mean, if a quiz master, it could be, I shouldn't say it's always, but it could be a cop out, right? So if a quiz master is in a position where it's a difficult ruling to make and isn't sure what to do and then says, well, I'm going to solve this riddle by just throwing out the question and redoing it. Uh, that's a cop out. Like, like I, I understand it's really hard to make rulings sometimes. And sometimes, especially if they're subjective and they're there, you know, there's some ambiguity or something along those lines. I get that making rulings is hard, but, uh, and you want to be fair all the time, but as a quiz master, I mean, in those situations, you have to just suck it up and make, make the ruling, uh, in, you can't just kind of say, well, I'll throw it out and, and, you know, have a do over. Correct. And so one way to really avoid, I mean, this sounds bad, but avoid even giving yourself that cop out is to just let the quizzer have those 30 seconds, because if the quizzer has had their full 30 seconds, um, regardless of the ruling that you make and whatever challenge that comes up, you're often deciding between keeping what you originally ruled or changing your ruling, which at the end of the day still results in some ruling and not the question being redone. Because I've had cases where um, I thought the quizzer was wrong and I counted them wrong before their time was out. Um, but then when it was I, either I realized or I was challenged and I realized that, well, they weren't quite wrong yet or something. Well, I have to throw out that question. Even if as a quiz master, I know like, oh, they weren't going to get it right. Like maybe I called them wrong at 27 seconds. Like all of that is regardless at that point, right? I made an error and I have to redo this question. Whereas if I just waited for their time to run out, my ruling is easy. Yeah, this actually reminds me of a situation that actually happened in my room at Madras. And I want to say it was Saturday morning sometime. It was still, it was, it was definitely during prelims, I think. Um, 
and a quizzer jumped and the answer that they needed to provide was son of God. And they jumped with such sort of, I don't know, authority. Um, they jumped with such like, I know this answer. I, I, I don't know how to describe it, but it's just sort of the, you know, like a quizzer jumps and they have this sort of like, you know, they've got it, right? It's just a matter of going through the motion. And he comes to the mic and he says, son of man. And because he started son of, I just, I, I reflective, I reflective, reflective, reflexively. There we go. Reflexively just said, I started to say yes, but I caught myself after like the why, right? So I basically go, yeah, oh no, right? You know, because because then it, it sort of dawned on me like halfway through the why syllable that he said man instead of God. And it's like, okay, shoot, because had I just kept my mouth shut, I... Uh, he, I think it would have been, I mean, yes, there's the theological difference between son of man and son of God. They're two different things, but putting that aside, I think from a quizzing context, I, I think it would have been okay for him to go back and correct and say son of God. And then if not, we certainly could have heard challenges either side. That would have been a much more appropriate way to do it. But because I sort of anticipated the correct answer stupid, stupid decision on my part. Although, I mean, it wasn't really a decision. It was just sort of in the moment, uh, but it was a mistake on my part. Uh, I ended up having to throw out the question and I, I, I told him, you know, in that moment, like, like I screwed up, you didn't screw up. This is on me. Like you should have had, you know, another 20 seconds to, to, or more 25 seconds to go back and, and get to, you know, son of God. Uh, and I felt crummy for that, too, because he wasn't getting like, you know, he was getting uh, jumps every few quizzes. But this was not a quizzer who was getting, you know, four jumps a quiz or anything like that. So I felt horrible about, you know, like not giving him the, his 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 opportunity to be, to be able to get that particular question correct. Yep, that makes sense. I've had times where a quizzer is quoting, I quote these two verses and just perfectly just humming along. And I've timed up my my ruling as a quiz master. And right when they hit the end of the verse, I'm like, you are correct. And then maybe they they had missed like a tiny word in the last like phrase of the verse. And I have to kind of backtrack. And it's just another lesson not to anticipate as a quiz master, no matter how sure something seems. Yep, indeed. All right. Next one. Let's see here. Okay, this, there's a lot of there's a lot involved in this one. So I believe the question was, um, "Word of whom, God?" Um, and the quest and the quizzers gave the question, "Word of what?" And just first, let's deal with this question: like, would you accept a word of what? Uh, with the answer being God, and referring to God the Father and not a God. So would I, Griffin, accept that? I would. And the reason is I believe that the, that the exact interrogative is not required for the, a, a specific question. I know there is some disagreement on this. Uh, it is, it is somewhat ambiguous from the rule book. And so, you know, I recognize other people can approach this and say, no, it needs to be exactly the right interrogative. But then you end up with a situation with like a, you know, a which versus a what. And if the question writer wrote a which instead of a what, and the quizzer said what, like, I just, I, it, it, I think the problem is if we start to say the interrogative matters, the interrogative word itself matters, a what versus a whom. Uh, in terms of getting the reference question recited correctly from the quizzer's perspective, I think it opens up a huge can of worms and a huge, like, sort of, there's all sorts of unintended consequences that sort of spill out from that sort of decision. And I just think it's so much simpler and much more clear and fair and unambiguous to just say the interrogative doesn't matter. Like, if they said word of when, I would wince. Um, but I'd accept it. So what I, what I think I'm saying, what I would say to that is it's not about the exact interrogative being required or not, or saying like the interrogative matters. Um, it's just saying like, does the question provided like match what I'm asking? So like you can, I would make the argument, like if I was making one side of the argument, I would say word of what makes no sense because God is not a what. Um, and so um, what you have provided to me is not a valid question. It's not about needing to get the exact interrogative on my card. It's you need to provide a valid question. 
Yeah, but I think word of what is a valid question. I mean, God isn't a what, that's true, but in a sense, what refers to an object, right? The concept of an object, sort of um, uh, a, if you want a platonic concept of object or class, in a sense, is defined by what? And God is a class, you know, in, in that sort of platonic ideal. So, I mean, you could say if if Griffin spoke a word, it was the word of whom, it was the word of what, right? You can refer to Griffin as a what, I'm a person, right? So I'm, I am a what, and I am also a whom. Um, so even in that case, I think it breaks down. But the problem is putting all of that aside, even the moment you say that I'm going to care about the interrogative, you're going to have ripple effects. I think a lot of which are, are, are incredibly unexpected and, and undesired. Uh, I've always had um, a reasonable time deciding if the interrogative word matters in a specific case or not. I think like multiple answer questions full of this, like um, the spirit and glory. Um well, that's not the greatest one, but sometimes there are ones where it's a clear person and a clear non-person, and I just don't think like full of whom or full of what um, either work as a multiple answer, and I don't, I don't think that's some weird, ambiguous desire to care about the mul the interrogative word. It's just you know it changes what material you're asking for. Well, okay, so here's the thing: if if the interrogative word changes the what you're asking for, I mean, maybe, maybe I can see the argument of it. But the problem is the, the moment you get down this rabbit hole, you have to, you, you, you are intrinsically now required to start caring about really weird, subtle situations. Now, granted, is this going to show up very often? No. I mean, the vast majority of interrogative words are what, right? Um, but it, it, I don't know. I think, I think, I think it comes down to this notion of like, we quiz on the material. We don't quiz on grammar. Um, so the goal is I want to, I mean, the goal of quizzing is to encourage the most number of quizzers to memorize the most number of verses. And so like, to me, if a quizzer has memorized a verse perfectly or enough to be able to answer the question, the, the interrogative word selected by the quizzer, it's like, well, that's not actually in the verse. Like, I don't, I don't even care really at the, at the end of the day, like I care that the quizzer memorized the verse. And if they say a what, when, where, why, whom, or how, like to me, it's just sort of, I just, I care that they got everything else correct. Now, that being said, if they provide a reference question that solicits material that's different than what's the answer on the card, then yeah, okay, fine. I, I get that. We count them incorrect. Um, but, uh, you know, if, if, if either interrogative will ultimately solicit the same material, it's, it's really hard for me to see how it's a good idea to count them incorrect. Well, I will agree with that, but I think some would argue that word of what elicits different material. But I yeah, think sure. I think I but think then it goes back to a question. subjective thing. Yeah, I, sure, agreed. But then it, but let's say it does solicit, like, does it, does it really though? I mean, like, could you give me an example where the interrogative would solicit, like, like everything else being exactly the same, the, the interrogative word itself results in different material being, uh, uh, required in the answer? Um, just any example? Yeah, I mean, it does, I mean, obviously, I'd love a good one, but you know, I'm I'm asking you on the spot, so I'll take a you know an um you know not so great example even also. All right, let's take the phrase on the third day. Um, Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus rose from the day. Jesus rose from the dead. Whom? Yeah, it's it's weird. It's it it it's it's it it's conf it's weird and it's confusing, but I think it solicits the same material. Like it's you an interrogative word where like okay. You've already but answered the, answer, the but the answer I need is on the third day. You're never yeah. going to use the interrogative word whom to elicit on the third day. Yeah, but if a quizzer did that, like I just it's weird, but again, it's like if I if I start to care, like I would in that scenario, the quizzer would obviously never say that. They wouldn't say they wouldn't provide the win, but let's say they did, right? It's weird and bizarre and doesn't really like it, it makes you wince. Right. But 
at the end of the day, I'd rather have that wince effect and have all of the rulings be consistent in every room than to say, well, now it's up to the discretion of the quiz master to decide whether the interrogative word is switchable or non-switchable. Like that just, I, I, I don't know, that just throws me into sort of subjective limbo. Mm. I mean, the only times where a quizzer is having to provide that interrogative word are on reference questions. And so I think we're often testing on very specific bits of material. And I think it's appropriate to require interrogatives that elicit those specific bits of material. And there are many interrogatives that I deem to be um, largely interchangeable. Um, and so there are situations where I'm asking a reference question, I didn't complete it, um, and I've already made up my mind. I'm like, these either of these two or either of these three questions um, I'm going to accept as correct. You know, often how and why are fairly interchangeable. There are many cases where what and who are interchangeable. Um, and there are some cases where like when and how are interchangeable. Um, and I'm pretty comfortable making that distinction because quizzers are often giving something that is decently reasonable. And as long as I don't deem it to be outright eliciting the, a different material, um, I'm, I want to accept it as correct. Yeah, but I mean, I think at the end of the day, we end up ruling the same way, but from different first principles, right? So like the word of what whom, we would both rule the same way, right? Um, Potentially, I think I would tend to be more lenient because I think what is used so ubiquitously within quizzing, and I think that God is not exclusively a person, and so I, I don't think I would deem a what to be incorrect. And yeah, and I'd, I'd get there too. But I mean, what if it was word of Griffin, right? And somebody said word of what? Griffin is also a what, right? Um, I'm a whom, right? And I'd rather be cons I'd rather be thought of as a you know a person with a soul and a mind. But I'm also a what? You know, I am a physical object, right? So I am both a what and a whom. Mm, I would call the quizzer incorrect in that scenario. Interesting. See, and I wouldn't. I would. I would be. I would wince, and I'd be like, "Well, it's really a whom," but I. I would consider that completely fine. And that's that's I'm, where we get into the ambiguity, right? So, you know, in Scott's room, that you're you're going to get counted. You know, you're going to ruled ruled on one way, and in Griffin's room, you're going to get ruled a different way. And that's the ambiguity that that I I don't like. I mean, I'm fine with that ambiguity. I mean, I think if if a quizzer wants to challenge, uh, I would be open to a challenge and convincing of why um, a, a person can be referred to as a what, you know? Sure. Know. But I mean, then you're, then you're, you're, you're getting to, but, but I mean, a challenge just, a challenge just means there's more ambiguity, right? I mean, a, somebody could challenge in my room uh, to reverse my decision, right? I mean, like, like, that's the thing. I think a challenge doesn't remove ambiguity if there's ambiguity there. It just means you can address the ambiguity a little bit harder. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I, I've always thought of it as fairly simple, but I mean, so what would you think about this scenario where um, there is no interrogative word inserted into the material and questions are just kind of asked like um, finished questions? Ooh, interesting. The, so it would be like a chapter reference question, like word of, but that that's it. It just stops. That's it. So then the quizzers don't have to provide a question, but then they may not be clued into what information is needed, right? So like, instead of like, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, instead of the question, who created the heavens and the earth, um, the question just starts at created, right? Created the heavens and the earth. And it might be that the answer that's required is God, or it might be that the question continues on and the quiz doesn't have any idea, but they're never swayed by either the interrogative word chosen by the question writer or um, the interrogative word they choose to give as a reference question. I'm, I'm probably too tired. I'm not following what you're saying. So, but I mean, I have a different level. Maybe I'm misunderstanding what you're saying, but I have a different level of, I don't know, you must be accurate between the quizzer providing the interrogative word and the question writer providing the interrogative word, right? So, I mean, this goes back to the whole, like, um, can you ask uh, a for a what where the answer is spirit with a capital S, right? Now, of course, capital letters don't mean anything in the original Greek, but let's, you know, we're talking about the NIV, you know, translation. So obviously the capital S is referring to the Holy, the Holy Spirit, not just a spirit. Um, and that is a who, not a what. Uh, I, I, I agree that a 
question is bad. I don't know if it's invalid, but I think probably is invalid. But I think a question is bad if it's if it asks the interrogative word of what instead of who. Um, but in a in a reference case where a question's a quizzer's required to answer, and they they call the spirit a what via the interrogative, uh, I gotta I I just keep coming back to this notion of like yeah. Um, I think it's okay. Sure, and I see that you are you're definitely making a distinction between bad and invalid. And I just think that my standard for or sorry, no, bad and incorrect. And I think my standard for incorrect is different than yours. And I think it's a higher standard. Not that that makes it better, but it's different and m- more strict. I agree. I completely agree. Right? Like, like yes, your standard is is higher and um, it's more strict. Um, and it's different. And here's why this is bad. It's bad because both your standard and my standard are uh, black and white acceptable under the rule book. Sure, but I don't see a way to make it better. Like, I don't think you can make it objective via the rule book um, and have that be a good outcome for quizzing because you have to you have to either say the interrogative word never has meaning or it always does. And I don't think right. either extreme is going to be any good. Okay, but I mean, what's the the worst case scenario? What's the worst case scenario where the interrogative word? Uh, it, what if we had a rule that said the interrogative word in a reference question, right? Um, as provided by a quizzer, the inter, the interrogative word itself does not matter, right? Now everything else does. Everything else is the same. Like it has to solicit the the right material, but the interrogative word is essentially a placeholder. It's just a blank, right? Um, the, well, but you you just said it. You just said it has to solicit the same material, and I think that that is the purpose of the interrogative word. So I think to say that the question has to solicit the same material, but then the interrogative word doesn't matter. Those are mutually exclusive statements. Yeah. Okay. Um. But let let's say let's say solicits the same material. Uh, with the interrogative word matched to whatever was written on the card, assuming the card is valid, right? Um, and I've, of course, I'm also laughing to myself about the idea that I keep saying card and we don't use cards anymore, but you know, <laughs> we're, we're all old school. Um, it's kind of stuck in my head, this physical, the physicality of a card. And in fact, I don't even, they don't, they use, they don't use cards at like Great West or internationals. We use sheets. So, but whatever, whatever. Sorry, I'm getting off track. Um, I don't know that there's, I just don't see the harm in in doing that. I think it ultimately still the quizzer has to get the right question anyway, regardless of of the interrogative and the edge case where they say a win instead of a what is so incredibly small. I'm willing to accept that kind of wincing situation, wince inducing situation so that I can have objectivity. Mm. Well, I'd have to think about it more, but it feels to me kind of like a faked objectivity. Like in we're just way, kind of like we're wishing away um, subjectivity, where but the end result is not really any better. Well, this is the thing. It, it's 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 better in the sense that there's no difference in ruling between uh, quiz master, right? Um, it ends up in in weird situations where, but I would say. In, it would be incredibly rare if it ever happened that you would have a whom versus a when, right? Or something like that, right? Uh, in terms of interrogative, interrogative swapping, uh, just incredibly, incredibly rare. And if it did happen, I'm willing to accept that sort of wince-inducing moment so that I can have non-subjectivity in, the, in something that is pretty critical at the higher levels uh, for objectivity. Interesting. I mean, I do think it's it's more common than you'd believe because there are many times where the interrogative could be a when or a how or a why, one of those less common ones, um, and the quizzers running out of time and they just throw out a question with a what because it's the safest thing to do. Um, and in situations where I'm asking for a specific when or how, um, I want the ability to count the quizzer incorrect because they've provided a question that elicits different material. Yeah, fair enough. But I mean – if that's truly the case, I think the 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 question would be different, not just the interrogative word itself. But I mean, I could be wrong. I mean, you know, 
I'm asking you to show me examples on the spot, which is totally unfair to you. So, um, you know, go look things up over the next you know week or two and let's let's talk about it at a future podcast. And, you know, maybe I can be convinced. Sure. It's not super common, but you definitely have phrases that are like um, at dawn, Jesus went into to Jerusalem quickly. And so you might have Jesus went into to Jerusalem, how and also when um, be pretty clear like asking for different parts of the material, um, especially in the gospels. There's a lot of like Jesus went. Um, and then there's often a time uh, modifying it. There's often a, a different sort of adjective modifying it. Um, yeah. So there can be, there, there definitely are scenarios like that, but yeah. Yeah. I don't know. And I realize I'm, I'm on, you know, a heavily biased, you know, holy war against subjectivity in terms of Quizmaster rulings. So you know, that, that bias is definitely at play here. Sure. Should we hit more Mark questions or shall we move on? Uh, let's hit a few more. Maybe we'll skip Hebrews 10 and uh, we'll do that next week. Sounds good. So in Hebrews seven sixteen, I think this one is pretty interesting. Um, the verse reads, One who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. And so the question is, on the basis of what? Um Okay, so this is a fascinating question. So the answer was on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Now, the phrase on the basis of appears twice, but it's in this verse. So um, it is valid as either an interrogative or a multiple answer, right? So that's our starting point. Now, sure. years ago, this would be a multiple answer. On the basis of what? A regulation as to his ancestry and um, on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. But that first one is actually a negative. So it's not on the basis of a regulation as to his, as to his ancestry. So this is not valid as a multiple. Um, do you think this is valid as an interrogative asking on the basis of what? The power of an indestructible life. I believe it is an invalid question. I believe that it ought to be a multiple answer question. Uh, but because of the way we have structured multiple answer questions in the rule book, uh, because of the you know the negative thing, it cannot be a multiple answer. And in an interrogative, there is no way to know what the right answer is. Um, like I, I basically, I mean, I could quote the entire verse, but like, sure, I'm I'm within the verse, but like, who cares? This is if it's an interrogative, on the basis of could be in fifteen instead of sixteen. Um, and of course, that would make it invalid because then it would need to be a chapter verse reference question, but. My point here is like I can't provide you an answer. Uh, I ha the only way to get this correct is to quote the verse, and I, I think that's an invalid interrogative. I'm leaning that way too. And so the fact that um, the first answer is so the first answer isn't really invalid in and of itself. It's just the two of them together are invalid as a multiple answer, um, and that fact does not make the sing one single answer valid in and of itself. I think I can get on board with that. Yeah. Well, I mean, the other, the, the complicating nature of this is that, um, I mean, we quote on the words, not the meaning of the words, but if you're looking at the meaning of the words in verse 16, there's that really important word before the first on the basis of, which is not, right? And so, you know, you're saying not on the basis of, the answer is a regulation as to his ancestry. And so if you're asking the question on the basis of, the answer from a meaning perspective is not a regulation as to his ancestry because the verse very clearly says it's not that one, right? Um, and therefore it must be the second one. And so I can see the argument of saying because of that, therefore it is an, a, a valid interrogative because the first answer there is explicitly saying not. But to me, it's like it, this goes back to the you have to... I mean, it's a, it's not interpret it's, but you, you have to understand the meaning of it to be able to skip over that first one. And the goal in quizzing is not interpretation. It's, it's not meaning it's, it's memorization. Right. Um, and so, you know, there's always going to be edge cases where that doesn't happen. And, and don't get me wrong. I'm not saying like 
quizzers don't think about the meaning of the verse. Not at all, right? I very much want quizzers to experience the illumination of the word in their hearts via the workings of the spirit. Absolutely. So the meaning of this stuff is absolutely going to be a natural byproduct of the quizzing process. But in terms of ruling, uh, I, I think we need to stay away. Sure. I'll have a, I agree with that. I'll have a statement and a question on this for you. So I think that the question, let's say this this verse just said not on the basis of a regulation. I think the question on the basis of what is um, strictly valid. I think it's bad because um, that's not what the phrase is saying at all. Now, you might be able to make a, um, the argument that it is so tricky um, and or misleading that it is invalid on that basis. But I don't believe that there's any other basis that on the basis of what is invalid. If it was just that one phrase, not on the basis of a regulation. I can see the argument. Yeah. I mean, I can see that argument. I just, I, I think this is because I mean, the word not is explicit. I mean, it's right there. Um, but I just, yeah, I just think it's a horrible question. I mean, it it, sure, it, sure. it really needs to be a multiple answer, but we're prevented from having it be a multiple. Therefore, we shouldn't Correct. write it. So then my question is, um, so let's say this verse is as it exists, and the interrogative is written not on the basis of what, um, which is valid. It's got a unique phrase in there. Um, so not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry. The quizzer jumps on not on the basis of and says not on the basis of the power of an indestructible life, uh, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. How would you rule as the quiz master? Oh, I don't know, because then you're saying, was he quoting or was he answering? Right. So, but I think that is irrelevant. I think you're saying, did the quizzer give incorrect information before they got it correct? Because I don't think there's any concept of quoting versus answering. Yeah, that's true. Um, that is true. So yes, um, yes, I believe you're correct. I think they would. Ha I wouldn't want to count them incorrect, and I would probably count them correct, not thinking about it, and then there would be a challenge. But I would agree with the challenge. I, I yeah, they they would have to be. There there are cases like this where you have. Um, Kind of, it's not this, but it's this in scripture, um, where it's very easy for the quizzer to say one because the last ninety nine percent of these two phrases are um, identical in a sense. You know, like they both have that on the basis of a right or um, and. But I do think that the quizzer would be incorrect before they got correct. Unfortunately, uh, indeed. Let, let's skip any marked questions until we have them a little bit more cherry picked and want to head on to study strategies. Yeah. Let's talk about, um, study strategies and then we'll, we'll skip the energy and attitude for next week. Um, or, or whenever we do the podcast next. So let's talk about study strategies to bridge the gap between now and meet three, which is, you know, a good, what is a month and let's see, December. So a month and a week away or something like that. So it, it, it seems like it's far, but it's actually not that far, but there's a lot that happens between now and then in terms of the lives of most uh, quizzers. Uh, so yeah, Scott, how would you, you know, stay, you know, focused on quizzing through that time, understanding that there's going to be a lot of natural, you know, family and church related breaks going on. Yep. So one tough thing that I had to deal with when I put together the study schedule for each year was I had to divide up the material between meets and one side of me wanted to keep the average number of verses per day kind of constant throughout the whole quiz year of new material introduced. But that means that um, between meets two and three, because it's by far the longest gap between meets, that there's a ton of new material in an absolute sense, not in a relative per day's sense. And I kind of wanted to smooth that a little bit. So I believe that between meets two and three, historically, it's been the smallest number of verses per day to memorize, which then means between meets three and four and four and five, it's a higher number of verses per day because those those meets are usually about five weeks apart. Um, I'm not sure what it is this year as far as the material that has to be memorized, but there are many factors in play that make it really hard to stay on schedule. Um, kids are often off school. Um, they're often having holiday events related to church and family. The weather is often poorer, which can kind of just decrease general um, energy levels. And it's just a really, really long time, maybe because of the holidays, there's not a quiz practiced once a week or twice a week or whatever cadence your church has. Um, 
Did you want to jump in with anything before I continue? Well, you know, in, in terms of the, the amount of memorization material. So uh, the the number of verses required to memor be memorized, or well, not required, but the number of verses that are available to be memorized prior to the scramble meet. So the first meet, uh, the only meet of the preseason, as I like to call it, is 51. Then from the scramble meet to district meet number one, that's 50 verses. So uh, you've got 51 and then 50. For meet one to two, it's 69. I'm going to skip this big break between meets two and three and come back to it. So we've got 51, 50, and then 69. Then the, the verses between meet three and meet four is 91. And then between, uh, between meet four and five is 75. But the number of verses between meet two and meet three upcoming and what we're you know memorizing right now is 133. Yep. So it looks like Jeremy undertook a, a similar strategy to me where there's just so many days here that you do want to have a decent amount of material. It's really to make other meets more as manageable as you can or not crazy. Um, but it does mean that there's a lot of new material here, even though you have adequate days to tackle it. Um, but what I would say is I always encourage quizzers to be empathetic towards themselves, but do something every day. I think quizzers can get really motivated at the beginning of the year and say, I'm going to memorize seven verses a day or quote for 35 minutes a day. And then if you miss one or two days in a row or a week, then you're like, well, it's hopeless now. And I think that it's very easy to do that. I mean, it's natural to be excited about something at the beginning. And then as you get into the kind of the grind, you get beat down about it. But I would build in kind of natural breaks for you to have days of no memorization or say, hey, if I don't feel like memorizing on a day, that's fine, but I should read over the material, the new material twice or something that is lower. I don't know what the word is. It's not necessarily lower stress, but there's lower um, exactness required or depth of focus. But it's like I will engage with the material to some degree. And I think that's very true over this break. There are going to be times where you have activities, um, you're doing other stuff. Maybe you can't sit down for an hour to memorize 15 new verses. But if you can read over the newest chapter twice, you'll kind of keep it fresh and make it um, a lot easier for you to memorize next time you get to it. Right. Yes, indeed. Well, any other thoughts on this before we uh, close up? I don't think so. I mean, I just, I loved looking at these big layoffs or things that are, can be difficult as it's difficult for everybody. And all I have to do is kind of be better than most and I will see results because of it. I don't have to necessarily memorize it the exact same standard as everyone memorized for the scramble meet, which would be an unreasonable standard to set for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, I look at the opportunity of adversity in a schedule as an opportunity, which sounds counterintuitive, but like I, I'm remembering back to when I was in high school, uh, I was a competitive cyclist. And one of the things that I loved about, uh, certain courses, uh, were the mountain stages. Uh, and of course people are like, well, wait a minute, is, aren't the mountain stages a lot harder? And like, yes, the mountain stages are, are absolutely a lot harder. At least I was not a, I was not a, I was not a specialist. Like I wasn't a mountain stage specialist. I was not a sprinter specialist. I wasn't, you know, I, I did, I was more of a generalist cyclist rather than one of the specialists there. Uh, but I loved mountain stages cause of the added adversity. The added adversity was there for everybody. And so all all I needed to do was just put in like a couple of percent more effort than everybody else in the race and I'd shoot ahead. Right. And so like the, the difference being, for example, like, let's say you've got a, um, a time trial, right? So a time trial in cycling is fairly short. It's, uh, usually done in a, in a few minutes it's on a, you know, stretch a road, but it's usually, a, you know, a few miles. It's not, it's not significant in terms of its distance or its complexity to ride or its difficulty to ride. It is difficult in the sense that it's a sprint. Like you have to just go full out, full energy the entire time if you want to place even remotely reasonably in the standings. And if you put in, let's say you do incredibly well and you put in 2% more energy than everybody else in the field, you'll, you, maybe you come in first place, but you win by like four seconds 
right? Um, it'll be this incredibly tiny margin. But if you put in 2% extra effort than the Peloton on a mountain stage, you can be you can become a few minutes ahead of the Peloton as a result of it, because those, the, the adversity is universally shared and the 2% sort of compounds your position. And I, I know the math doesn't make any sense, but it, trust me, it, it does make sense in, in actual reality. So yeah, like don't feel like, you know, you're looking at the adversity that's coming up here between meets two and three as like this wall and feel disillusioned about it. In a, instead, feel excited about it. It's an opportunity where if you put in just a little bit of extra effort than the average, you can see remarkable gains coming up in District Meet and District Meet 3, and that will cascade into Meets 4 and 5 and beyond. It's a great mindset to have, um, not just in quizzing, but to not get overwhelmed by the absolute difficulty of something, but recognize that um, you're facing the same thing as everybody else, and so it's how you handle um, that difficulty relative to everybody else. Absolutely. Well, with that, we'll close things up. Uh, we'll save off the uh, energy and attitude and, and Hebrews 10 and a few other uh, ideas and things and mark questions for next uh, podcast. But if there was anything in this particular podcast that you disagreed with or agreed with or have insight into or have questions about, we would very much like to hear from you. Uh, please email us at iq at cbqz.org and you can follow us on on Twitter. Our Twitter account is at Inside Quizzing. And with that, I will say thank you, Scott, and thanks for listening. Thank you, everyone. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving.